Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Red Handed early and ad-free. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Did you know we're eating and drinking roughly a credit card's worth of plastic every single week? Yep, that's disgusting. So Blue Land set out to do something about it. Eliminate the need for single-use plastics in the products we reach for the most by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and for the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. The idea is simple. They offer refillable cleaning products with a beautiful, cohesive design that looks great on your counter. Blue Land even has a special offer for our listeners. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash redhanded. You won't want to miss this. Blueland.com slash redhanded for 15% off. One more time, that's blueland.com slash redhanded for 15% off now. You know we love Shopify. Shopify is like an all-knowing retail wizard that's always got your back. A retail wizard that can accept payments, manage inventory, and sell anything you can imagine, anywhere you can think of. Online, easy. In person, piece of cake. The best bit about the all-knowing retail wizard that is Shopify is that it knows exactly what's going on across your business. So no more guessing what's selling well online and what's doing better in person. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash redhanded, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash redhanded to take your retail business to the next level today. One more time, that's shopify.com slash redhanded. I'm Hannah. I'm Saruti. And welcome to part two of 2021's Halloween special. Insert noises. Can I insert a noise? Um, I don't know what it's not going to be. I'm impressed at this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it Great. just keeps playing until you press the button again. I see. We've got. No, it, it, oh, it's, it doesn't. Yeah, I think we might have some. Oh my God. What is this? Witchcraft. We got sent. But first, let's start with, um, we have obviously started a brand new show called Sinister Societies with the lovely Spotify and Parcast. And it's out every single Tuesday exclusively on Spotify. Hannah and I talk about all sorts of cults, secret societies, weird organizations that are up to no good, stealing your money, pretending to be legit businesses when they are in fact cults. Yeah, yeah. Or unsuccessful actors. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that (laughs) kicking about. And the reason we have sound effects as bizarre and out of place as they may have just sounded because we've never pressed those buttons before on this fantastic new audio interface that Spotify sent us which is very lovely thank of them Spotify. so thank you and uh thank you to everyone who has been listening to Sinister Societies already if you haven't go check it out go and check it out we are coming to you from the past as you are listening to this we will probably be on our way to Glasgow for our live show, our live tour, the Empty Handed Tour. I can say that now because we've released the tour art. And if you have seen it already, thank you very much. If you're going to see it in the future, congratulations. You'll have a great time. And with that, I don't think we've got anything else to fucking say. So I think it's my turn to go first. Oh, the only thing I have to say. Oh, it's always one. It's always one. I'm sorry. Is that if you weren't able to come on tour and you're like, I'd quite like some tour merch. Or I'd love some merch that says no fuck boys on it because it is, of course, the empty handed tour. If you would like some of that, tour merch and the no fuck boys merch is now available on redhandedshop.com for all of your merchy needs. Yeah, so head on over, have a quick look at it. The no fuck boys jumper is all I wear now because everyone needs to know. Mm-hmm. And we also have a no fuck boys beanie, we've got no fuck boys mug, 
There's loads of stuff There's you can find. fucking heaps. And the best thing about the No Fuck Boys jumper, in my opinion, is that the font is quite small. Mm-hmm. So people have to sort of squint to read it. Oh, yeah, And yeah, then yeah. they realize what it says. And then they're like, yeah. Yeah, bitch. It's because it's very wearable. It's very wearable. We kept that in mind because some of you were like, stop putting swear words on your merch. We can't help it. So yeah, go check it out. There is as many fuckboy merch variations as there are fuckboys out there. So enjoy it. And now let's get on with today's story swap. Okay. Mine is kids again. Uh-oh. So I'm sorry. Actually, you know what? No, I am. I am sorry about it. But Mine um, is also. Okay, well, it's, you know what you're in for, guys. What did you think this was going to be? A nice story about a kitten? Like, it's Pre- not. Preparations, please. So I am taking us to Thailand. And this is another one that's been sat on my case list for many, many moons. It's kind of like, well, it's not kind of like, it's exactly a child eating bogeyman. (laughs) It's kind of like exactly this. Yes, it's exactly what it is. Every culture obviously has a bogeyman. If you might have seen Cropsy on Netflix, which is one of the ones that turns out to be true. In Costa Rica, they have, they, I mean, they have a lot, but like the one that I remember the most clearly it's always to do with if you're a bad man, mm-hmm. if you've done something, if you have shame and guilt that follows you around. You'll be walking home late at night, you'll probably be drunk, and you'll hear a chain behind you. And it's a massive dog that's just stalking your guilt. And there's also the classic one of um, the woman getting in your car, mm. and instead of you turn around and she's gone, or she's a ghost. In Costa Rica, she's a big horse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Costa Rica, that's quite amusing. It's like the one I've told probably on a Halloween episode before that my grandma told me where they pick up the little kid, put her on the back of their bike and then they turn around and she's a full grown woman. Ah, that's so scary. They have a really similar one in Costa Rica also. I used to like, when I did like conversation classes, I obviously never did any work because I'm a terrible teacher. So I'd just be like, tell me some ghost stories. (laughs) Uh, So that's why I have a a catalogue of Mm -hmm. Costa Rican ghost stories. I mean, that was five-year-old me with my grandma. And if you want to hear the little girl on the bicycle story, go back and listen to Halloween episodes of past. I've definitely spoken about it. I think in the the Hindu one, maybe. Oh, yes. Oh, I sent you a very funny TikTok on Instagram. She doesn't check her Instagram, um, but I sent it. Watch it later. Okay, I will. Um, It's about Tamils. Oh, excellent. Um, You're going to hate it. Anyway, (laughs) uh, so every culture has its version of the bogeyman. Sometimes they eat children. Sometimes they steal them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they burn them. Do you know about shock-headed Peter? No. So shock-headed Peter is a German myth. And what he does is he's got sticky-up hair, Mm -hmm. hence the name. Mm -hmm. And if children suck their thumbs, he comes in the night and cuts their thumbs off with scissors. Bloody hell. I know, Germany, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's so traumatic. Yeah. I've got even more for you. In Afghanistan, they call their bogeyman the Madar-i-Al, and it's a bogey lady who is a nocturnal hag who kills babies. Inuits have Lijarak. I'm butchering these, but stay with me, which is a shape-shifting creature who kidnaps children, I imagine, like the polar bear in the terror. (laughs) If you haven't watched the terror, Mm -hmm. go. Go now. In Haiti, it's Met Minwi, who's a skinny man as tall as a house who roams the streets at night, eating anybody still outside. And in England, we've got fucking loads. Depending on the region, there's Springheel Jack, Black Anis, Grindelo, there's bajillions. But in Thailand, there is only one bogeyman. There is only one name that sends shivers down the spines of children to this very day. And that name is Sequay. And no, Sequay wasn't a shape-shifting horned demon with wings or a hag hiding under children's beds or even a small boy with spiky hair and scissors. He was a man. And unlike the countless stories of bogeymen apart from Cropsey around the world, 
Sequoia was very much real, and so were his victims. Born in 1927, he was the youngest of four in a farming family in the Shantou province of China. Sequoia had a hard time of it as a kid, as I imagine many children did in the 20s in China. At least he was a boy. That's true. At the age of 18 in 1945, he was drafted to fight under Chairman Mao against the Imperial Japanese forces, when one day his unit found themselves trapped in a Japanese siege for weeks on end. I'm listening to Hardcore History's Pacific Theatre at the moment, which is fascinating because obviously Second World War education in this country is very focused on the Germans and what the British, Battle of Britain, the Blitz, blah, 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 blah. blah. Mm -hmm. So we don't learn anything about the American-Japanese fighting that all happened in the Pacific. And I was listening to it this morning on my way in. And in like the Pacific Islands, American soldiers would sleep in foxholes in the night and the Japanese soldiers would just creep up to their holes and scream at them. Or sometimes they would jump in the holes and gouge their eyes out with their thumbs. Oh my God. And all of the other American soldiers are just lying there having to listen. Oh. Yeah, and they're like Marines in these like islands. And Dan Carlin, the hardcore history guy, who's like, he's interviewed a lot of mm-hmm. Marines. And he was like, the ones who will not talk, mm. all fought in the Pacific. So fascinating. Go and listen to the series. It's amazing. I mean, Hardcore History uh, doesn't uh, need my help, but it's, it's amazing. I mean, it is amazing. And some truly, truly scary stuff. And you're right. We don't learn any of that. We just mm-hmm. go Egyptians, Tudors, Nazis. Yeah. Nazis bad, Churchill good. And then you find out when you're older that Churchill was a big racist. So he is fighting against the Japanese, which Dan Carlin has taught me was a very scary thing to be doing. And sorry, just about Churchill, before people are like, well, he was just a man of his time. Um, he caused and continued to propagate the famine in India that killed millions and millions of people, just saying. Oh, yeah. He was really not very nice to Ireland either. <laughs> yeah. And so it was when people are like, oh, well, you know, he was just a man of his time. So no, no. obviously he was a bit of a... Ra- no, mm, mm, mm. White supremacist. Yes. And I will fight anyone on that. So, um... Rule <laughs> Britannia! <laughs> I wonder what noise this button makes. Crickets. <laughs> when your joke lands so well that your soundboard just makes you makes you realize what a piece of shit you are. <laughs> so Sequoia is in this Japanese siege for weeks and weeks on end and the food supplies ran out and with no other option, Sequoia's unit were forced to eat grass to escape the excruciating pain of starvation. But the taste of grass, not being a cow, didn't agree with Sequoia. Instead, he decided to feed on the flesh of dead soldiers on the battlefield, and I will bet my bottom dollar he was not the only one. Oh, no. When you said grass, I was surprised. I was like, they were eating grass. I thought they were just eating each other. Oh, we got there quickly. Yeah, yeah. Just a salad starter, and then a nice little human steak. Hey, I would. I'd eat you. If you were dead, I'd eat you. Would you? If I had to survive. And you were already dead. Um... I feel like you go for the legs because mm. I'm, you know, if I'm having chicken, yeah, I'm yeah. always a thigh girl. I've got, I've got very muscular thighs. Yeah. And you work out a lot. You cycle a lot. So I'd go for your thighs. I think that's the, the best thing for you yeah. to do, honestly. I'm the a dark meat. Bullshit. Dark meat girl. Not into the breast. Thigh, straight to the thigh. Breasts are just sacks of yellow fat. Um, especially mine. <laughs> um, I'm holding them as I'm saying <laughs> she that. She is. Um, just to check that they are still there, which unfortunately for me, they are. Right, so the following year, on the 28th of December 1946, Sequay snuck out into a cargo ship and made his way to Thailand, where he picked up any odd job that he could, eventually ending up as a gardener a few hundred kilometres south of Bangkok. Occasionally, he'd travel up and down the country to other farms, picking up odd jobs, making some extra money. He was just a bit of a strange, sort of drifty character in both appearance and behaviour, and people around him 
weren't huge fans. He was an unsettling guy to be around. Mm. But he was a yeah, weird guy, not many friends, bopping around from farm to farm. About eight years he goes without, without incident. But we're not going to bore you with those eight years because that's not why we're here. Let's fast forward to early 1958 and the seaside town of Known Fra. It was late on a Monday afternoon when a man named Niwabunyakan sent his eight-year-old son Sombun to go and buy some vegetables from the local Chinese gardener to use for dinner. Hours passed, and as dusk approached, Sombun still wasn't back. Concerned that his son had wandered off and got lost, Nawa asked his friends to help him search for Sombun in the nearby woods. Time was of the essence. The sun was setting. It would be dark soon. It would be too dark to see where they were going. But suddenly, as they made their way through the thick woodland, a smell filled the air. It smelled like a mix of beef frying and fatty pork on the grill, mixed together with some sort of pungent sulfurous smell, like singed hair. Uh-oh. Which is the worst smell in the world, in my opinion? It truly is. No, this is one of my favorite, least favourite things about going to the hairdresser, really. Do they set your hair on fire? It's all of the... Well, apparently some of them do now. There's like a whole trend where you can get your hair singed off. I, at the Turkish barbers in Haringey, mm, they yeah, burn yeah, men's yeah. ears. I've they seen do, that. They do, they do do that. It's just like when they use straighteners on people's hair that's still a bit Oh, wet. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop it. Stop doing that immediately. When I worked, um, I used to work at Polpo, which is like a restaurant chain in London. And in the sort of shift change between lunch and dinner service, you put candles on the table to like signify the mm-hmm. evening time. And I had a tray full of candles. Uh-oh. And my hair wasn't as long as it is now, but it was still, you know, reasonably long. I must have been about 20. And I had this tray of lit candles and someone asked me something and I turned my head. Oh no. And it just went, <gasps> Oh my God, stop. That's like the yeah. real fucking horror story. Yeah. I mean, obviously the children being mad at us also. So my instant reaction was to just hit my head with my hand. <laughs> And it went out and I didn't lose that much hair, but I stank oh. <laughs> to serve all these people their dinner being like, I'm sorry, I'm disgusting. Oh my God. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had an extra hour in the day? I think we all do. Whether it's finding time to chat to a friend or just getting down to read a good book, it never feels like there's time to fit everything in. For me, therapy has been a great way to focus on the things that are important in my life and work out why. For instance, it feels like the most rewarding thing in the world is to sit down and listen to one of the many audiobooks I've been stacking up, but just keep forgetting to listen to. Just sitting and listening, rather than trying to fit it in around my busy schedule, gives me an hour of real peace in my day. I would never have given myself that time without therapy. If you want to learn to give yourself a break and think that therapy might be for you, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, super convenient, and you can switch therapists whenever you need to for no extra charge. Just fill out a quick questionnaire and get paired with a licensed therapist today. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com redhanded today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash red-handed. I have been absolutely rinsing my Audible membership this month. I've traveled so much. I had to go to India. Oh my God, I traveled for like 30 hours. So this was a massive godsend for me. Now, when we got an interview with the lovely US journalist slash author Tamron Hall for shorthand, we were so excited to devour As the Wicked Watch and watch where they hide. Luckily for me, both of these and a whole massive slew of other great true crime content were, of course, up on Audible. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment, 
with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for thriller listeners like us. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalogue. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash redhanded or text redhanded to 500-500. That's audible.com slash redhanded or text redhanded to 500-500. In the near distance, Nawa could make out the flickering lights of a small fire and the silhouette of a man sat behind it. As he got closer, Nawa realised that the man was actually Si Kuei, who was the Chinese gardener that he'd sent his son to just hours before. Nawa was relieved. Hopefully he could give him some clues about where to find his Sam Boon. But the relief he felt quickly turned into horror as he looked down at the pile of brush Si Kuei was burning. Sticking out from under the branches and dried leaves was a leg. A child's leg. Well, of course it is. Good. He had found Sam Boon. Just so he's just walking through the woods looking and then he just finds this man with a fire pot and his child's leg. Yeah, child's leg. For fuck's sake. And the air is filled with singed hair Mm -hmm. smoke. Good. Nawa, similarly to me, uh, banging my own head, began stamping out the fire and kicked the smouldering debris away, revealing the partially scorched and mutilated body of his eight-year-old son. Screaming. Nawa lunged at Sequay, beating him bloody and pinned him down as his friends went to alert the police. Over the next few days, the story of the gruesome killing made headlines around the country. Murder wasn't anything new in Thailand in 1958, but the details of this killing were unlike any other, and that was because Sequay had disemboweled the eight-year-old Sambun. He started off by piercing his throat right underneath his Adam's apple and cutting straight through his trachea. Then he stuck a knife in his belly button and slit his abdomen wide open, and he cut his abdomen all the way up to his throat. Sequay was looking for two specific organs. Oh, God. The heart and the liver. Why? why? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Why when cannibals are... Oh, sorry. Why when people are cannibals? Do they always insist on eating the offal? We don't prioritise the offal of any other animal. No. No. But I feel like in Thailand and Vietnam, Mm. yeah, you're eating insides. In Korea, if you go and sit in a restaurant, there's like a little plate of like some pickles and some radishes and chicken bum holes. Well, you know what? Top to tail. I approve. If you're going to kill it, eat the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And no one will tell you what it is until you've already eaten it. Sequay was looking for the heart and the liver, not because he was some sort of awful fanatic, but actually because a few years beforehand, Sequay had met a Chinese hermit. We don't have hermits anymore. You never hear about hermits. People no. self-identify as hermits. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, do I throw myself under the bus? I would say people, yeah, self-identify as hermits, especially last two years. Yeah, but you live in a house. To be a hermit, you have to live mm-hmm. in a cave, I a see. wood. I see. You have to dress entirely in moss. Maybe you just don't hear about them because they're grossly underrepresented. I, I don't mean, know. yeah. And they're not going to tweet being like, had a great fucking day at the waterfall. <laughs> I demand more diversity for my kind in the popular media, please. So this Chinese hermit had no problem with how weird Sequoia was, apparently, because he gave him all of his knowledge and he actually told him how cannibalizing human organs can awaken a supernatural power within. Oh, that'll do it. Mm-hmm. Sequoia only ever gave one interview to the media. And in it, he said that he believed truly and wholly that eating human livers and hearts would boost his vitality and lifespan. So to fulfill this dream, he'd taken Sonboon's organs back to his home where he cleaned them and placed them in a bowl ready to cook them. 
But then it dawned on him that this was not ready, steady, cook time. This was go and get rid of the evidence time. Uh, you want to prioritize that. You don't want to be worrying about the evidence when you're cooking. You just want to focus on the cook. This is the thing. I think just clean as you go. It's good cooking tips, really. I agree. Mm -hmm. I clean as I go. I clean as I go because I'm just like, you don't want to get to the end. You've cooked a lovely meal and then you turn around and your kitchen looks like a bombsite slash your yeah. woods looks like a fucking abattoir for children. Clean as you go. So that is why his cleanup operation is why Sequay had been in the woods. He dragged the eight-year-old's body just out in the woods. But I imagine in rural Thailand, it's probably you can't see a hand in front of your face dark. And there he set it alight. During his police interrogation, which lasted a whopping 96 hours, Sequay reluctantly told the officers every lurid detail of how he had killed Sombun and feasted on his organs. But to their shock and their horror, his confession did not stop there. He went on to admit having killed and eaten five other children over the years. He said that he both enjoyed the taste and sought the magical powers that their flesh could give to him. So, here we are. The first one was on the 19th of May, 1954. A 10-year-old girl named Nid Saife was murdered in a village in the Tapsake district. Her body had been cut up and multiple organs were missing. No culprit was found at the time, until Sequay confessed. Six months after that, on the 28th of November, 1954, the body of a six-year-old girl named Mao Chu was discovered near the Swan Chitalada Royal Railway Station in Bangkok. Her throat had been slit, but her heart and liver were left intact. Why did he leave the organs? He didn't leave all of them. He took oh. her genitals. Oh. Sequay told police that he decided not to eat her heart because it was too small, and instead he just ate her esophagus. Mao Chu's mother had taken her out to enjoy a night at the opera, but after the show, Mao Chu had disappeared. Early the following morning, railway workers found her mutilated corpse. The only evidence at the scene was a single, bloodthirsty toe print. Bloodthirsty toe print? I just made that word up. <laughs> it was a single, it was just a bloody toe print. Just this toe print that's yeah. like yeah. trying to bite people. Dyslexia strikes again, my friends. <laughs> I love it. I also keep trying to look down on my notes to see where we are. And I, I get... was doing that last week. And I'm like, what? what? What's that? What, what yeah. document have I got so, open? Actually, Sequay is a ravenous toe that hops mm. around Thailand, leaving prints everywhere. The toe print was no use to anybody, bloodthirsty or not. <laughs> and the case was cold for three years until Sequay's confession on the 31st of January, 1958. And he said, at night at around 8 p.m., I left the house alone. I went to look for a temple near Wa Lam Hong. I came across a young girl who was crying near the opera house. I went to comfort her and I asked her if she'd come and play with me. And she agreed. So you didn't go to comfort her then? You went to eat her? Yeah, he went to eat her up. He went to comfort himself. He went to go and give himself magical powers. The girl complained that she was sleepy. So I carried her through the Hua Lam Pong station to Rong Wong Road and across the Kasatsuk Bridge. I walked until the Mahanak intersection and then along the railway for about 300 steps. I laid the girl down and tried to wake her. And then I drew a six inch long folding knife. I held the girl's body down. I covered her mouth with my left hand and stabbed her with my right. I stabbed her neck beneath her Adam's apple and the girl started crying. She wore a white shirt that I cut open. Then I cut her from navel to throat the same way I did to Sombun in Rayong. Then I cut out her genitals. Mm. Throwing half away, and then keeping the other half in my pocket. <laughs> Your pocket? Yeah. He came out with a knife, but he didn't come out with, like, a bag. Carry bag, Ziploc, for sandwich August. bag. <laughs> bag for life. <laughs> but after that, he was done. He, he went back home. Oh. 
Still more, I'm afraid. After the killing of Muichu, it was another six months until Sequoia would kill again. On the 22nd of June, 1955, it was a seven-year-old kid this time, found mutilated and raped in the district of Samuroyot. And this was the first of his crimes that showed any sort of sexual motivation. I was going to say, so it's the first time there's a sexual assault involved. Mm. I mean, yes, but also I think you could argue stealing an eight-year-old girl's Mm. genitals is probably sexually motivated also. I mean, maybe that's what started it. Yes, yeah. Four months after that, he struck again in the very same district. He's not bothered. He doesn't care. This time it was 10-year-old Nang Sali, and during the confession, Sikwe said that he used a folding knife to pierce her neck and then just left the body at the scene of the murder. And then he went two years without killing another child. Maybe he got a girlfriend. Mm. But just as the mothers and fathers of Thailand once again began to let their guards down, the disemboweled remains of a five-year-old boy were discovered next to an iconic landmark in the town of Nakompaton, and this kid was called Siwichu. It was a Chinese New Year, this particular one, and Sikwe met her while she was walking alone. Again, he carried her to a tree and then pushed her to the ground, covered her mouth with one hand and one with his free hand, used his favourite folding knife and slit her throat. Then he took her to a cave and dissected her body took out her liver and heart, and then carried the body back to a nearby temple and just left it there. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely just, like, fully in sexual mode now. He's, yeah, he's uh, devolution, devolution station central. Mm-hmm. Sequoia left more evidence at this particular scene than any of the previous murders, which may indicate that he might have wanted to get caught. We have seen that before because he knows he can't stop. And that would be his penultimate killing in his series of brutal child murders that only came to an end when he was caught burning Son Boon's body. His trial was nine days long and it began on the 25th of March 1958. And Sikwe held absolutely nothing back. He confessed to every single murder he was charged with and divulged every minute detail of his crimes. He was sentenced to life in prison because in Thailand, mandatory clemency is granted for people who confess. But the prosecution weren't exactly ecstatic about that, considering they had all of the evidence to get a conviction and he only confessed once they caught him. The appeals court agreed with their objection and Sikwe was sentenced to die. After hearing this verdict, he fainted on the spot. Bit dramatic. Bit dramatic. And he only came round when someone gave him a cigarette. So maybe he just really wanted a fag. Sikwe spent the remaining years of his life locked up in Bangkok's famous Bangkwang prison, which is otherwise known as Big Tiger, and it's called that because it has a reputation for stalking and eating its prisoners. How poetic. I know. There are poetic people at the Mm. time. Fun fact. In the West, however, this prison is better known as the Bangkok Hilton because there's an Australian TV show starring Nicole Kidman, which I have not watched. It's called Bangkok Hotel. No, it's not. It's called Bangkok Bangkok Hilton. (laughs) Um, I looked it up. I haven't watched it, but essentially it's a mini series. And Bangkok Hilton is a reference to the Hanoi Hilton, which is what American soldiers used to call a prison in North Vietnam in the Vietnam War. And it's essentially the story of Nicole Kidman plays this child who's like the product of an illicit affair between her mother and someone who was a POW in a Japanese camp. And he handed in his own men because they were planning to escape. And after the war, he's then court-martialed and then like shame, blah, blah, blah. And Nicole Kidman grows up thinking that he's dead. And then when her mom dies, she finds out he's alive. And then she goes to find him. And that's basically oh. it. And that's called Bangkok Hilton. A much less fun fact and very sort of violation of human rights all prisoners at Bangkwang are required to wear shackles, like leg irons, for three months. The first three months they get there, they're literally shackled. And right up until 2013, 
all death row inmates were required to have leg irons permanently welded on them until the day of their execution. Yeah, I mean, that is the most terrifying part of that. Well, all the kid murder, yeah, for sure. But like the idea of, my biggest fear when I was traveling was that someone would put drugs in my bag and then I would get caught and I would get shackled up in Bangkok Hilton or something. Like genuinely scared. Yeah, yeah. Scared. It happens. It does. And it was here in the Bangkok Hilton that Sikwe gave his one and only interview to a journalist. The reporter isn't named, but they described Sikwe as having a rather unremarkable appearance, because they always do. So he didn't really seem like he fit these monstrous crimes. But the journalist said that he only looked normal until he opened his mouth. He had a habit, apparently, of scratching his head and yawning. My brother does that when he's nervous. Mm. He'll just, like, fake yawn if he's, like, uncomfortable or whatever. So it's really annoying. (laughs) Stop the fake yawning. My God. (laughs) But apparently, when Sikwe yawned, his snarling teeth were visible. And his eyes turned to look like those of a beast poised to strike its prey. I believe this journalist went to the Sensationalist School of Journalism, and I am not sure that that is accurate. <laughs> I just love the idea that when he yawns, maybe the most placid thing a person can do, that's when CK looks the most terrifying. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Makes sense. This journalist asked CK why he targeted children, and he was very honest about it. He said because they were easy to lure and fool. Mm, that is true. That, that is, is true. That is why mostly, well, obviously you can be a uh, preferential pedophile, but mostly child sex offenders are just like, opportunistic yes i love him he's a little kid who's on his own crying outside a railway station on the 17th of september 1959 at the age of 32 the grand old age of 32 sequoia was executed by firing squad so as long as your 32nd birthday is better than that we're on the road for saru's birthday so it's gonna be a well we have fun we'll have fun yeah definitely no definitely it'll be fun and uh yeah as long as i don't get executed by firing squad i think um i think i can arrange that To not be. Yes. Excellent. Outstanding. Because at the moment, they're waiting for you in Manchester. But in a way, Sequay's end was also his beginning. In what way? Because his bullet-ridden body was preserved and used for medical testing before it was embalmed and displayed in a glass cabinet in a medical museum in Bangkok. (laughs) What? It remained there for almost 60 years Mm. as a morbid attraction for tourists from all around the world. It was a visceral reminder to children that the bogeyman was real, and if they didn't do their homework or go to bed on time, Sequoia would unembalm himself and come and eat them. I mean, okay, when you were like, okay, this is the, the thing that everyone is scared of, all children are scared of in Thailand, I was like, why? A case happened so long ago, how would kids know about it today? Just take him there mm-hmm. and look at this man in a jar. Be like, he's going to come and eat you. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. So the Forensic Science Museum, where they've got him in a jar, uh, is in Bangkok's oldest hospital. And you can go and see fetuses with uh, congenital deformities in glass jars. You can see diseased brains. You can see amputated limbs. And also a giant scrotum of a man who had elephantasis. Let's go. Okay, we do not even need to go to Bangkok to see that. Where do you see it? So you go to the Royal College of Surgeons on Ah. Lincoln's Fields in London. And you go to the Hunterian Museum, which is my favourite museum i can't believe you haven't been i've never been I oh even my know god it. okay it does it stinks of formaldehyde but like so you I go you go literally into the royal college of surgeons and then they give you a little visitor's pass and then you can just wander and look at all of these fucking weird oh i love god. it and there i don't know if there is anymore because i haven't been for a few years but there's a little surgery machine where you can like put your hands in and then like like pick up little things to see how like dexterous you are it's a good time 
Like operation. Exactly like operation, but with actual surgical tools. And Hannah and I actually did spend um, oh, yeah. a few hours a couple of Fridays ago just sat downstairs in our WeWork drinking beer and playing operation because why not? It's hard. And like half the pieces were missing, like half the little plastic pieces were missing. So we were just like screwed up as a paper and put it in there. But that just made it harder. Um, but anyway, oh my God, I didn't know that this was even a thing. The Hunterian Museum is hands down my favorite museum in London. Why have I never been? I don't know why I've never told you about it. How? Um, I didn't even know about Okay, when can we go? Let's go right now. Let's fuck this. Let's fuck off the tour. <laughs> fuck it all off. Let's just go to the Hunterian Museum. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Okay, as soon as we're back from tour. Yes. Please, let's go to the Hunterian Museum. Okay, done. Done. Okay, great. That was easy. So even if we did go to Bangkok, though, we couldn't see him because uh, last year there was a petition with more than 11,000 signatures to the hospital demanding that his corpse be removed and that he was given some dignity and a proper funeral, which is fine. Mm. But you can still go and see the giant. Mm. There's a giant in the Hunterian Museum. Yep. And it's actually actually really sad because like it's his his skeleton, obviously, but there's like a little plaque saying like the giant's name and blah, 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 and that he had requested to be buried at sea so he wouldn't be displayed and they displayed him anyway. Yeah, that makes me sad. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff like that in the Ontario Museum. Well, it's every museum. <laughs> every museum I walk around, I'm like, where did where did this museum, well, not this museum, where did the British steal this from? Yeah, and there's actually like a bit more controversy around Sequoia's death than just his corpse being displayed to scare children. A lot of people have questioned the credibility of his confession, despite him openly saying that he was never coerced to do so, and also because of all of the evidence. But... A lot of people still uphold that Sequay was just a victim of the Red Scare, which was a fear of the Chinese communist insurgency in Thailand at the time, which I can buy. Also, at the time, Thailand did have a bit of a reputation for scapegoating migrant workers. But, you know, we don't know. He definitely did something. But regardless, the story of Sequay, the child-eating bogeyman, will forever be cemented in Thai folklore mm-hmm. and Thai history and the world. And now you know. I love it. <laughs> I also love that you're about to go on jury service. And maybe to get you out of it, we can just play this segment where you're just like, well, I don't know. We probably did something. Probably did something. No, I'm just, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just pe- going to fucking jazz it and be like, well, it's probably some black kid. Stole a bun to Stole feed his family. <laughs> yeah, just going to let him off. <laughs> what is it when he's like, uh, again, peep show. Um, and he's like, well, you know, no smoke without fire. <laughs> there you go. We'll get you out of jury duty yet, Hannah. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you browse homeowner reviews, compare quotes from multiple local pros, and even book a service instantly. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. 
Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code WONDERY. Okay, right, excellent. Yours was very um, foreign. Yep. I am leaving England. Okie dokie. I'm taking us to Ireland. Okay. Today. So my story today is, has been on my list for quite a number of years since I heard about this case, but I've always just struggled to find enough information and then I finally did find one very good source for this, which is okay. why it is coming to the surface today. I can't wait. So it's, it's good in the most awful way. That's what Halloween's about. I know. Um, so it is absolutely unbelievable and I am pretty confident mm-hmm. that most of you won't have heard of it. So as I said, I'm taking us to Dublin today, specifically to 1973 in the suburb of Palmerstown in Dublin. And it was here that a crime so unspeakable occurred that literally no one talks about it. Um, the other day, I, this just popped into my head. I was out, I think at a gig or something, somewhere in Soho. And there were these two Irish guys outside. And uh, we were talking to them. And they were like, yeah, like the, the restrictions are so much heavier in Dublin. So like coming here is max. It's just like normal life. And I was like, oh, where are you from? They were like, we're from like the wood green of Dublin. I was like, oh, tell her. Oh, dear. So no, I don't know too much about Palmerstown. What I have read is that in 1973, it's quite like um, a close-knit area. It's quite working class, uh, very conservative, very religious. But you know, that was most of Ireland, mm. but specifically this area. Like that was just the general vibe. And like I said, no one spoke about this crime. No one speaks about this crime. And um, actually, when this killing happened, the only nearish full account of this case that was reported at the time was published in the Montreal Gazette in Canada in French. Sure. So why not? <laughs> Fine. I don't understand. Basically, this case, when it happened, for the large part, was completely swept under the rug. And those aren't just my thoughts. Basically, anyone who brings this case up today inevitably has to ask, and again, not my words, but the words of Irish journalists, why Ireland found itself unable to cope with this particular case and why it was almost completely covered up. Okay. Is it, is it, Mm. what fucks people, what fucks Irish people up? It's a God thing. It's got to be. Yeah. I mean, basically, I suspect that in large part, it was due to the quote unquote satanic nature of the crime. Okay. That old... That old chestnut. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's probably to do with the fact that both the victim and the killer were children. Mm-hmm. And actually, this case came up again into the sort of consciousness, into the sort of discourse when Anna Creasia was killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, if you haven't listened to our episode on Anna Creasia, we covered it God, probably last year. Um, it, it's well worth a listen to. So yeah, I think basically the crux of why it was probably covered up is that early 70s in Ireland was not exactly a super chill time or place. And I think they just weren't ready to have a lot of conversations about this particular story. No, it was, it was not, not filled with joy and dreams. Unfortunately. No, so like I said, I would have loved to actually turn this case into a full-on episode, but there just isn't enough information out there. The only place you'll get anything on this story at all is the most comprehensive book that is out there that I read by an author called David Malone, and it is called The Boy in the Attic. Mm -hmm. I would definitely recommend this book, especially because David spends a lot of time 
exploring and digging into the kind of cultural and religious impact of this yeah. case in Ireland. Yeah, Malone's an Irish name. He's really knows what he's talking exactly. about. Exactly. And it's more time than I have to go into. And he's obviously more Irish than I am. So it's well worth a read. And also, can I just come back to the paper that did publish it in Ireland? The only paper that mentioned this case led with the headline, Boy 7 is found dead. And in the column, it says, it is believed the death was accidental. The boy's name was John Horgan. And as you will go on to see, there was nothing accidental about his death. He was very much murdered in cold blood. Right. There's not even any question. There's not even an ambiguity. I don't know why they said that. (laughs) It's very, very strange. But let's get into it. So yeah, despite what you will hear in some places or read in some places, this case is very much true, even though it seems to have slipped somewhat into the realms of urban legend, which is so bizarre. Okay. So true, true urban legend. So on the 17th of June, 1973, in Palmerstown, a man named Terry Horgan had to take his wife to the hospital. So he asked his neighbours, the Bales, if they wouldn't mind watching his little boy John for him. The Bales happily agreed and sat little John down in their garden with their pet bird to watch and play with until their own kids got home. At around 6pm, the Bales' granny, because also in this village, everyone lives in like multi-generational households. So Mm -hmm. it's like all the kids, the parents, the grandparents, everyone's living together. Yeah, it's very Charlie Bucket vibes. Uh, Absolutely. And so the Bales' granny noticed that little John was missing from the back garden. And like I said, it's a very close-knit community in Palmerstown. So as soon as the Baleses raised the alarm that John was missing, the whole area came out to look for him. At around 7pm, Terry Horgan, so this is John's dad, comes back from the hospital and was met with a state of panic in his neighbourhood. Because by now, by 7pm, everyone was seriously worried that either David was maybe lost in nearby fields or possibly had had an accident in one of the many like construction sites that are scattered around the area. They try, look for him, no luck, and so at 9.30, the guardie were called. When they arrived, they spotted Terry Horgan yelling at a teenager. It was a Bales' eldest son, 16-year-old Lorcan. Apparently, Lorcan had been the last person to see John, so of course the guardie questioned him. Now, one of the investigators was a man named Detective Sergeant Jim Noonan, and he noticed that as he was interviewing Lorcan, the boy was being a bit odd. He seemed almost a bit too cool and collected when everyone else in the town seemed scared. The guardie were also a bit suspicious of where Lorcan had said he had last seen John, because the teenager said that he had seen the seven-year-old standing by a gate about to go into a field. And when they dragged Lorcan outside to show them exactly where he had been standing, they realised that from that spot, you couldn't see that gate anyway. So lots of conflicting stories. He's making himself look very suspicious. So now the guardie tried to plead with Lorcan, telling him, if you know something or you saw something, even if you're scared, you need to tell us. According to Jim Noonan, Lorcan now looked a bit awkward, fiddling with his jacket sleeves and not making eye contact. So the investigator casually stated, well then, we'd better search the house from top to bottom. So obviously Lorcan is the Bales' eldest son and that's where John was last seen. So saying we're going to search the Bales' house. To which Lorcan Bale whispered, okay, I'll show you where he is. <gasps> and then Jim Noonan says, where is he? And Lorcan says, he's in the attic. Oh my God. I did spoil it by telling you that the name, the of, name of the book kind of, yeah. David Malone's book is called The Boy in the Attic. But this is what Lorcan says. I still feel like that is quite a shiver 
sending up your spine moment Mm -hmm. when Lorcan just looks at them and he's like, okay, fine, I'll show you where he is. And what detectives found up in the Bales family attic was like nothing anyone could have imagined. Seven-year-old John Horgan's body was hanging, arms outstretched from the rafters. His wrists had been lashed with red cord to wooden beams either side of him, giving him the look of having been crucified. No! Yeah. Again, I'm telling you guys, this is real. This has really fallen, like I said, into the realms of urban legend. People continuously talk about this like it's not true. It absolutely fucking is. There are lies out there. Some people have said that he had been, his wrists and ankles had been nailed to the wooden cross. But like, this is horrific enough. We don't need to make it worse. Like, this is bad enough. And the nails aren't what kills you. Yeah, exactly. It just gets worse because little John's body, his head had even had some cord tied around it and tied up to a nail that Mm -hmm. was behind him to stop his head just like falling down so that he was looking straight out Mm -hmm. when the detectives walked up into the attic. John Horgan was also completely naked, except for a tie hanging around his neck. Mm. Like a business tie. Oh no. We never really find out why the tie is around John Horgan's neck, but it is. So as the detectives walked up into the attic and struggled to take in what was in front of them, and as their eyes adjusted to the dimly lit room, they noticed what else was up there. Because it's not just this horrific scene. Is it Jesus? It's... Is it Jesus-related? Is it the opposite of Jesus? Yes, it's all of the above. In the centre of the attic, there was a silver chalice, bookended by two tall white candles. In front of this chalice was a bowl filled with sand, on top of a sketch of a pentagram. Mm -mm. Next to this, there was a clock, which had been stopped at 5pm. The time, as investigators would later discover, was the time of John's death. Fucking hell. Mm. I know. And on this, to put it mildly, weird altar, there was also a bronze bell and a carving knife, some incense and an old mustard jar filled with dried petals. Also, there was a lump of charcoal and you'll like this, or not like it, but might find it interesting, two tarot cards. Okay, which ones? The devil Mm -hmm. and the lovers. Okay. I was going to look up what they meant. Devil is not actually devilly and lovers probably not. No, the... I'm going to get my book. So I always carry around with me the beginner's guide to tarot. (laughs) And the lovers, it's not really to do with romantic relationships. It's more to do with an alignment of goals, an Mm. alignment of rhetoric, politics, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, So if you're looking at it in a sort of relationship context, it's like you're on on the right thing. Your your worldviews are the same. You want the same things. Mm -hmm. So I'll find the devil page first. The devil's a lot more to do with like cardinal desires. It also depends which way up it was. Oh, I don't have that information. (sighs) Well, okay, fine. (laughs) So this is what it says in the Beginner's Guide to Tarot. The devil, an often misunderstood card. The devil is not about the source of all evil in Christian myth, but the inner wilderness that we all possess that generally needs tempering. The devil is associated with temptation, addiction, selfishness, but also clouded perceptions that arise from an enslavement to outmoded ideals. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Well... Two points on this. One point, I will say that the detectives definitely freaked the fuck out when they saw this scene. Understandably, absolutely. And even a seasoned investigator, you would freak the fuck out. And I think that possibly they would take zero comfort. (laughs) I love the idea of you being like the tarot consultant to be like, 
it's not actually anything to do with the devil, guys. It's actually just about our inner wilderness. Yeah. And then being like, I, I, it's not bringing me any comfort whatsoever. But what I would say is quite interesting is that what you're saying about the kind of challenging of outdated ideals, I wouldn't give the killer that much credit or nuance. But what I would say is possibly that's what he thought of himself, as we will go on to discover. Mm-hmm. So, and I think mm. in like, oh, where are we? 70s Ireland? 73, yeah. If, honestly, if my dad was still alive, tarot cards would not be in the house. Like it, it's no, like it's, so it's not even like a, my grandparents generation mm-hmm. thing. It's, and obviously that's not everyone's experience, but that's my experience. But um, no, if my dad was still around, there's absolutely no way I'd be fucking with the occult in any way, shape or form. That's so funny. What is less funny is what else they found up there. Okay. Um, so aside from all of this stuff I just listed, the detectives also discovered a large pan filled with human excrement. Oh, good. Mm. Yes. So to Jim Noonan, and the other guardy, it looked a lot like what they had stumbled upon was a black mass. Yes. So I claim to be no expert in this particular field. I know it's very nuanced, but I did look up what a black mass is. And I've also re- I also really enjoy the book, The Exorcist mm-hmm. by William Peter Blatty. I think it is a fantastic book. Obviously, the movie is great, but if you haven't read the book, I would highly recommend. And he talks about black mass and things like that. And that what it is in a very basic sense, and I might be wrong. But it's basically... It's fine, I've got you, I know what black is. I know what black is, is, thank God. Basically, my understanding is that it's a ceremony or ritual carried out in different ways by different satanic groups. And there's obviously a lot of hysteria about these rituals from, like, religios. But really, as far as I can see, black masses are a way to mock Catholic mass. Yeah, it's a direct inversion. Yeah. So that's why you have the crucifix upside down. Yes. That's why you still need to have the chalice there. Mm-hmm. That's why he's got the human excrement. It's kind of just like a mockery of the Catholic mass. So doing everything in inverse, like just making fun of it. So I don't know if they actually think it's going to call upon the devil. But as we talked about in the satanic episode, like most people, that's not what they're no, trying exactly. to do. But Catholics are, you know, have always been very scared of black masses, which is why the tabernacle, which is where the Eucharist is kept, has a lock on it. Because in order to like carry out a black mass, you need the Eucharist. So like it's sort of kept under lock and key specifically for black mass. What's uh, a Eucharist? Uh, the, um, the body and blood of Christ. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like the wafers and the wine are kept in the tabernacle at the back of the church. And then during mass, it is unlocked. And then you okay. can eat of the blood and flesh of Christ. I see. Okay. Yeah. And that's also why the silver chalice is there mm-hmm. because it's like an important part of the black mass. Interestingly, this silver chalice went missing from a local church that had a break-in. That is where you would find a chalice, exactly. to be fair. Exactly. The Catholic Church has got enough fucking chalices. Okay, they can spare one. They come and get it back. So, oh, of course they do. And this actually brings us on to the next part of the story, because some places do state, and I did read this and feel a bit like, oh my God, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'll give you both sides of it. Some places state that the guardi were so freaked out by what they had found that they immediately called the local priest and let him completely take over the crime scene. Some places report this. This is not what John Malone says happens. So it's hard to know. The places that claim this also say that apparently the Guardi let the priest even cut down John Horgan's body and remove items from the crime scene before they could have been, you know, investigated any further Mm -hmm. and just take them away to either be disposed of or to be consecrated or whatever. I can't verify this, like I said, and I don't want to pretend like that is exactly what happened. It could be from people who are like 
anti-religious propagandists or whatever saying, oh my God, look how hysterical it was. But it also could have happened. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. I think something important to clarify specifically about this era is there was a lot of mistrust in the government. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of mistrust. Obviously, like, there's a lot of underground IRA activity. Everything's in secret. Mm -hmm. Like, nobody knows who to trust. Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. All that does is put more power in the church. Yeah. Because the church becomes the the source of truth. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, this is Dublin. But the more rural you get, the more power the priests had and still have in some places. So it, it would not surprise me at all if they were just like, this is a problem we don't know how to solve. Let's call the police. Oh, yeah. The and priest, the even. Priest, the yeah. priest police. The priest police. Just to reiterate, like, how Palmerstown, like, how specifically kind of these households in particular were very, very conservative, very religious. The Bales' family, um, which is where the little boy goes missing, so Lorcan Bale, they church twice a day before you go to work kind of situation. And no English in the household, only Gaelic, which apparently at the time in 1973 illegal. was rare. So yeah. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, that is a very like, Ireland has, no one speaks Gaelic really anymore. It's taught in school, but mm -hmm. not in the same way. I don't know. It like, it's, I think it's important though to like preserve languages. I mean, oh, I don't yeah. speak a fucking word, but um, the, it's 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 hard to oh yeah i know i absolutely i think it was more interesting because what the newspapers i had read and what uh, david malone says in the book is that now there's kind of this revitalized interest mm. in the language and they're teaching it in schools and people are really you know regained a passion for it but in 1973 it was very rare to see a household that oh was yeah like, we do not speak english in this house so that just gives you a flavor of kind of how kind of i guess it probably goes hand in hand with being probably quite religiously conservative as well and that is the household that we're dealing with So the priest was definitely called. How much he took over the scene of the crime, I don't know. But the priest was definitely called. And uh, this priest was Monsignor Richard Mulhali. And he wasn't just an ordinary priest either. No, Anna. Monsignors are not. None, they're very, they're big balls priests. They are big balls priests. And this guy was even more of a big balls priest because he was actually head of Opus Dei in Ireland at the time. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he is a personal friend of the Horgans. Whose little boy has been found. Him. Wow. Okay. So he is there. He came to the house, obviously, to support the Horgans, who he knows, but also to take the chalice back because, like I said, it had been stolen from a local church a few weeks before the murder. Now, everybody's kind of freaking out because of the religious slash satanic nature of the crime itself. Understandably, it's a horrific thing. But what really happened? Well, this is what Lorcan, 16 year old Lorcan, confessed to the Guardi. He said, I had a cup of coffee that day that Terry dropped John over at ours, and I thought about how I was going to kill him and hide his body. This is a 16-year-old. He then apparently went down into the garden and asked John if he wanted to go and look for rabbits with him. The young boy excitedly followed him into the field, and once there, Lorcan told John, seven-year-old John, to stick his head in a rabbit warren. And when he did, Lorcan pulled out a wooden club that he had brought with him. Mercifully... I think we can say John died immediately. But Lorcan didn't know this. He didn't know that the little boy was dead. So he gagged him. And then he shoved his body into a bag that he had brought with him and began dragging John's body back to his house. A couple of kids actually saw him that day while he's dragging the body because he just does this in broad daylight. Where 
kids hang out in this field hunting rabbits. So it's mm-hmm. not like he's doing it in the woods in the middle of the night. And he just told all these kids that he was carrying firewood to go home. Mm-hmm. So once Lorcan got David's body home, he dragged the child into the attic and put him on display. He then went back downstairs and pretended like everything was perfectly normal. Once everyone was distracted by the search party, Lorcan slipped away, went back up into the attic and cut all of John's clothes off. And Lorcan was a weird kid. He was. He had a reputation for being a bit of a loner. And from childhood, he'd been quite sickly. He'd been in and out of hospital for quite a while when he was young. Everyone who describes him describes him as quite pale and gaunt. And he was also quite slight mm-hmm. in every sense, probably because he had been quite unwell when he was a child. But aside from this, it's really hard to pinpoint the specific reasons that he went so off the rails. His family were super religious and super conservative, like I said, but that wasn't exactly unusual in Ireland in the 70s. And some of the other kids had actually reported that Lorcan had killed small animals and used their bones to make jewellery. Classic. Mm-hmm. Ding, 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 ding. Bet he pissed the bed as well. Oh, this is the thing. So much of this story, I just can't pad out because we don't mm, know. We yeah, don't yeah. know what happened. But one story, one of his friends from school said that apparently someone had left their dog tied up to a lamppost while they went into a shop. And Lorcan went over <gasps> and choked the dog to death with its own leash before the owner came out and then ran away. Oh my God. I know, this is what I'm saying. And I find it hard to believe that in a town or a community this tight-knit that people didn't know that he was doing stuff like, or that who was the one that was doing this. Again, I feel like there was a lot of sweeping things under the rug, unfortunately. The other thing that's also very unclear is how exactly Lorcan became interested in the occult. Because, you know... David Malone makes the point that they didn't have the internet then, so it's not like he just got interested in it that way. And some of the detectives and David Malone himself make a weird point of being like, well, how could somebody who was brought up in a Catholic household become... I was like, who would have become interested in this if they hadn't been brought up in a Catholic household? This is the thing. This is the... I never understand this argument because, like, you cannot have angels without demons. Hmm. Like, you're told about it all the time and you're consistently told that, firstly, you were born bad and there's nothing you can fucking do about it. And secondly, you're surrounded by imagery Mm. of stuff like that. And I like, I am sure that like the spookiest people on earth are former Catholics, like because it's so filled with folklore and superstition and myth. So it doesn't surprise me at all. If anything, I think Catholics go harder than anyone else. Yeah, I would be more surprised if he hadn't been brought up that way. And also like, you literally believe you're eating Jesus. Yeah. And this is the thing, isn't it? That what you're asking somebody to believe in Catholicism and then what you, the the core tenets of like what you have to believe in Catholicism Mm. and what you would need to believe to be what this kind of person thought they were being in terms of an occultist are similar. The power of the Bible, because if you didn't believe in the power of the Bible, it doesn't play a role in this black mass or whatever he was doing. If you didn't believe in a God, you couldn't believe in the devil. So it is the exact kind of profile of a person that would do something like this and claim these were the reasons. Absolutely. Completely, absolutely. Like, it's such a ridiculous argument. Yeah. And I think people find it very hard or found it, especially then, quite hard to understand, which I do empathize with. So a lot of people did say that, oh, he'd been hanging around with some adult occultists and they were the ones that had convinced him to murder this child. There are so fucking many of them hanging around in fucking Dublin. Like, it's just not true. There was like, you know, like one of those like witchy shops that sells mm. like crystals and stuff. There was one of those near where I grew up and my Catholic friends weren't allowed to go in. And that's like, you know, I'm yeah. 31. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's not. And that's in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, there really is 
a lot of superstition around it, but like I don't believe that you can consistently tell a community that mm. the reason that women can't be priests and therefore the most powerful person in the community is because of Eve and because they are bad. Mm. Like, I don't believe that you can tell people that and it not fuck them up. I really don't. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one thing from like a very feminist issue angle, but it's like a myriad of things you're asking yeah, yeah. people to believe, not even related to that. And then expect them to maybe have completely rational ways of processing other things that happen. Mm. For example, a lot of people at the time, including the Monsignor we talked about, believed that Lorcan had been possessed by a devil or a demon or the devil. And that's why he had killed. And I'm like, that's probably not what happened here. But again, I can understand why people would jump to that conclusion if you've been asked to believe all of these things and then you're confronted with something so horrific. Of course you would. So eventually Lorcan was convicted of the murder of John Horgan, thankfully. He didn't sort of get away with it by saying that, you know, he was possessed. And he actually only ended up serving about nine years, though. He is actually now a free man. And uh, since Ireland was certainly not an option for him. No, I wouldn't have thought so. Once he was released, I believe that he actually now lives in London. Oh, good. Yes. You can catch him down the London Irish Centre. At that museum we're going to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But as far as I can tell, to be fair to him now, he was convicted, he served his crime. And David Malone, the author of the book, The Boy in the Attic, did actually track him down and interview him. That is the last part of the book. And he doesn't seem to have been in trouble again yeah. with the law. And he just seems to be quite like an introverted, insidey kind of person. But it's quite interesting that while he was in prison, apparently he managed to steal paint from like the arts department or whatever of the prison. And he painted pentagrams all over the ceiling, walls and floor of his room. Again, how much of it is just like a teenager wanting to freak everybody out? Yeah. And like, well, I'm not going to say how much of it is like the devil, because obviously it's not. But you know what I mean? Like he, but how much of it does he actually believe? Yeah, yeah. Versus how much of it is he doing just to freak people out? I don't know. Because again, there's just so little information on this case. But I do want to end with what I thought was like the part that also sent more shivers down my okay. spine. Because although he hasn't been in trouble with the law again since, and he seems to have been rehabilitated possibly as much as anybody who had committed a crime like that can be, if it is true. But back then as a teenager, it seems that Lorcan Bale wasn't planning on stopping after the murder of little John Horgan mm. at all. Because a few months after the killing, some kids were playing in the field where John had died, and they found a canvas bag stuffed inside a rabbit hole. Inside, there were some porn mags, some odd items like a knife and a candle or whatever. But there was also a piece of paper with a list of 10 children's names on it. And John Horgan's name was one of them. Oh my God. The others were all local kids who all had blonde hair and blue eyes, <gasps> just like John Horgan. And it's so scary in the book. David Malone speaks to the kids who are now adults, because it's the 70s, whose names were on that list. And obviously everyone is convinced that Lorcan Bale was basically just going to kill all of those kids. And they're like, it could have been me. It's fucking scary, right? That's terrifying. Yeah. So that is the case of the boy in the attic and the murderer of John Horgan. Whatever you see anywhere, it is true. It's not an urban legend. But if you do Google it, you will find almost no information. So go buy that book, I guess. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Malone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that brings us swiftly to the end. To the close. Of this year's Halloween extravaganza. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us if you came on tour. Mm-hmm. If you would like any more red-handed content, head on over to patreon.com slash red-handed where we upload tons and tons and tons of extra content every single week. You can choose the pledge level you want to support us at and then as required, you will get corresponding amount of bonus content. If you're like, that is not enough and I'd love to hear you guys talk about cults, then head on over to Spotify where you can listen to our brand new exclusive podcast, Sinister Societies, where we talk about exactly that. Quite. We'll see you on the other side, also known as November. Goodbye. Bye. Prime members, you can listen to Red Handed early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free on Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hey you, before you go, tell us a little bit about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. (laughs) Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.